Michelle Donnelly, and this is the Christian Single Moms Podcast. I believe that every single mom can discover a life of peace, power, and purpose, and that you can do it right through the things that God is carrying you through in your season as a single mom. Here we talk about all of the things that matter to a single mom, but most of all, I hope you found a place where you feel like you belong. Let's get started. I'm so glad to have you with me today. I'm your host, Michelle Donnelly. Today's conversation is about the ways that our children experience loss and how they process something like divorce over the long term. My guest for this conversation is author and speaker Lauren Reitzema. Lauren helps us to understand loss and divorce from the perspective of our kids, how they are experiencing the changing family structure and family dynamics, and how that extends over the long term as they develop emotionally and cognitively. I know a lot of us deal regularly with feelings we'd rather not have, feelings like loneliness, anxiety, rejection, anger. And depression. The ways we've learned to cope with these emotions and with our triggers can help us survive, but they can also eventually keep us stuck in patterns that cause us to feel overwhelmed and threaten our well being and our relationships, especially when it comes to our kids. Over at plusoneparents.org, slash quiz, you can take the what's your stress style quiz and learn more about how your coping strategies might actually be holding you back but how you can also make changes that will get you moving forward. That quiz again is at plusoneparents.org slash quiz. Lauren is able to give such great insight when it comes to this topic because she herself was a child of divorce. Whether that's your story or not, Lauren is able to give us so much perspective when it comes to our own journeys and the journeys that our kids are walking alongside of us. Here's my conversation with Lauren Wrightsema. Lauren, it's nice to have you with me today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Lauren, understanding what our kids are experiencing can seem like somewhat of a moving target. And I think most listeners are coming from this subject from one of two angles. Either we've never experienced a divorce prior to our own, and so we're not really sure what our kids are experiencing. Or perhaps we were children of divorce and our healing process is still continuing. And there's some things we know that we want to do differently, or there might be some things our kids are experiencing differently. And we just want a baseline for where we can go with this. So to get started, I want to talk about grief and the role of grief in our kids' processing of divorce. And what are some of the things that maybe even we do to kind of circumvent that process for them? That is such a great question. And, you know, it's, it's always fun to start with the grief, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're going to just launch right into the hard there's stuff. Value, there's such value there. And the reason that I share that is because I think, especially in the faith community that I'm a part of, you are always looking for the redemptive end point. And we rarely spend time focusing on the cross and the grief of the situations that bring us that pain. And we're in a, a cultural norm and a social norm where there's so many dopamine hits that help us escape the pain, uh, especially for young kiddos and teenagers that they can always look towards something else to give them that you know hit of positive endorphins. And oftentimes sitting in the pain is so foreign and uncomfortable that we rarely even recognize its role in the process. And so I feel like from my experience with divorce, it was incredibly painful, but I didn't necessarily feel like others knew that or others agreed with that because it felt so commonplace and also so just kind of, uh, I, I would say, maybe another day on the calendar. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's tons of loss and there's a lot of, of pain and grief, but for some reason, when a family splits because of divorce, it it feels as if it's less 
grief ridden than maybe if somebody loses uh, a family member in another way through uh, death, perhaps, which is incredibly traumatic and, and awful and grief ridden in its own capacity. But oftentimes it's as if divorce doesn't actually feel or get attention as a loss. It's mm-hmm. just another day. And there's a lot of loss that comes and we need a place to grieve that as children and as adults. Mm -hmm. You know, and you're so right. Our culture is so positive vibes only. And I think when it comes to church cultures, it's one of those things where we want to hurry up to the resurrection and redemption. We want, we don't want to, we don't want to stay in good Friday. We don't want the days in between. We just want to move straight to resurrection Sunday and have the tidy bow on it, but there is a process there. And we tend to, and I think some of this even too, as you kind of pointed to, there's less of an awareness of the grief and the loss that comes with divorce. And I think because primarily the church is still somewhat uncomfortable with the topic of divorce. And so knowing how to walk with people, like there are no casseroles that show up on your front doorstep. Your kids don't have there's no awareness in the the schools, the teachers don't, they, they rarely even know that it's happening because mm-hmm. it's such a masked setting where you just put your brave face on. Mm-hmm. And even in the announcement of divorce, mm-hmm. for me, I remember in, in all the goodness that my parents were trying to you know, do and, and foreshadowing why it was the right choice and we're all going to be okay and it's not your fault and this is great. And it almost felt like in the announcement itself, there was no place to say, we're grieving. We don't want this. This is not what we promised you or each other. And there are so many things that you we really can't explain right now that we're even processing but I want you to know that there is going to be some hard, mm-hmm. but I promise you, we're all here to get through this together and we're going to heal together rather than you're going to have two houses and it's going to be so fun. Mm-hmm. And everybody, it, it almost feels like a lie, honestly, yeah. Yes, when it's foreshadowed that this is the best thing for our family. But if you were like me, my family was together for a majority of my childhood and upbringing. And so I was at a loss to know where the future was going to be good because all I could see was a, a blank black slate of, mm-hmm. of sadness in front of me. And there at that time in my life, there wasn't anybody to say, okay, this is normal to feel this way. Uh, you're going to get through this. It was more of your parents are doing this for the best. And mm-hmm. it just is always pointing toward the positive and hear me. I am a positive, optimistic glasses, three quarters full person, but I think you actually delay and maybe even forego the healing process if you don't allow grief to be a part of it. Mm, that's so good. I think on top of this too, our kids are going to be experiencing an extra layer of betrayal because if they've grown up in a household of faith, we've told them most likely what we believe God's opinion of marriage and divorce and those types of things is. They have a theology that's forming around this. And then all of a sudden, their family does not even fit the theology, perhaps that we've already started to instill in them. That is such a relevant question. And when I wrestled with personally, because a lot of my community around me were not from a Christian background, and they had wonderful, loving family structures that embraced me as part of my healing process and they didn't know God. And so here I was trying to figure out how to lead in my understanding of God being this healer who could save anybody from anything. And I wrestled with the fact that he wasn't big enough to save my parents' marriage. Uh, and, And I too walked through those seasons where I remember my parents saying to me very authentically where you guys are good. We're not, we're not going to get divorced. And I held onto those promises and felt like, well, I, I trust you. You're my parents. You're, you're trustworthy people. Your character is intact, but I don't understand how to reconcile the promises you made to each other and the promises you made to us that are now unfolding and in a direction that I could not have foreseen. And so how do I, how do I wrestle with that and manage 
where my theology stays. Uh, and that was a, a big part of my spiritual and uh, personal journey in just figuring out God's character in it and his heart toward it and what he thought of me and our family. Uh, that's that's a really big part of the aftermath is how do I how do I reconcile a God who who really doesn't love this, mm-hmm. but who loves me and mm-hmm. who loves my mom and who loves my dad and everybody around us. And, you know, it splits churches, it splits communities, it people feel like they have to take a side. It's really mm-hmm. complex mm-hmm. and it's quite confusing at times. Mm-hmm. And our kids are in the epicenter of that. And I think sometimes even as moms, we are so focused on trying to turn the boat right in our own lives that we're not even really sure how much our kids are absorbing of this. And if we have older kids or teenage kids, we may have some sense of it, but it may also come out sideways. It may come out in outbursts or in anger and aggression or withdrawal, all sorts of different ways that our kids are communicating that they're not okay, but we may not be really sure how to draw out what's at the bottom. And they need, what I've come to see is they need our guidance a little in drawing some of that out. And we have to sit in the discomfort and have them say things like, I'm mad at you, or I don't trust you, or I don't trust God because of what you did. Exactly. And to feel like you're not posturing yourself with a defense and a deflection toward that positive when they come to you in that moment, to be able to say, hey, I, you know, emotional safety is a huge part of relationship wellness, no matter what your background. And I think people misinterpret emotional safety to mean you're not allowed to feel angry, sad, mad, uh, anxious, that that actually those are bad emotions. And all of the emotions of happiness and joy and positivity and gratitude, those are good emotions. But we need to come to a conclusion and, and a safety in our culture to be able to say every emotion is a healthy emotion. It's how you process that emotion and, and make sure that you don't, you know, don't lead with that emotion that where we really have to be uh, directive in skills. But I, I think you're absolutely onto something there that's really relevant for a population of kids who say, I can't show my experience because it's going to add to my parents' pain. I remember from my experience moments where I was so concerned about the health of my parents' process that I I would sit in my head and say, okay, you can't feel, you can't cry right now. You need to tend to your, your mom's tears, right? Or you can't, uh, you can't be a disruption right now because your parents don't have any more en- energy for you. So my grief was actually masked in a lot of performance and, mm-hmm. and high stress, not letting anyone see that I had cracks. And that eventually caught up to me in college. Uh, but it was exhausting. And it really felt like I, if I had that emotional safety more, maybe earlier in my process, mm-hmm. and I could have had that punching bag of it's okay to be mad. And I want you to tell me everything you're angry about rather than you need to be put together. You need to be kind. You need to make sure that no one sees that our family is any different than any other family because we can't be shamed, right? Mm-hmm. All, all of that. Um, and again, none of that was said verbally, but I felt that in my yeah. core yeah. and I carried that every day. I think too, that's where our kids may even seem to think that they need to fill the hole that's now left in the family and where we would not want our kids to be parentified that they may even choose that on their own and that we would have to call that out and be aware of any tendency that a child may have to feel like, oh, I have to take care of mom now, Mm, especially in those times where they may see us melting down. They may see us coming apart. And I don't think it's bad for kids to see that there is grief. As a matter of fact, we model it for them. But in that space where they feel like they have to take responsibility so that you feel better, that's a difficult space to be in, to know where that line is as far as how much emotion to show. But I think one of the the guardrails there is they can see the emotion and you can talk them through some of what is going on in your own process devoid of details yes, yes. <laughs> that would cause them to know things that they maybe should not know. 
Exactly. The age appropriateness of the conversation and what you share is so vital to the process. And I think, you know, if you've got toddlers or kindergartners, you, 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 I, I remember saying things not had nothing to do with my divorce, but when I was parenting my kids at that stage, and I still have a little two-year-old, she's my youngest, to be able to say things where I get on my knees, I'm sitting with them face to face. And I say, you know, mommy's heart is really hurting. And here's why, because I was wanting to go skiing this weekend and there's no snow. And so I'm disappointed, whatever. I'm, I'm giving a really lighthearted Colorado example, but the idea of you're not going to go to your kindergartner and say there was infidelity in my marriage and yeah. your father, you know, and just berate him or, my, but you'd be able to say, Hey, mommy's heart is, is really hurting. And here's some of the reasons why, because I love our family and I love you and I, I love your daddy. Uh, but I, some, some boundaries or some things that hurt our hearts are happening really regularly. And I need to protect you and myself from experiencing that long term. And this is something that I really wanted to avoid, but I, I really am struggling to, to be okay right now. And so if you feel sad, if you have tears, feel free to tell, to tell that to me and to your dad, right? Because we are in this together. That's kind of that younger. Then as you get into that adolescent experience and to be able to say, Hey guys, Promises were broken here. We did not do this well. And I mean, what an opportunity to teach ownership to a generation that is blame shifting everything from homework assignments that aren't turned in to why their room is a mess to hurting someone's feelings and not having the audacity to say, I, I was wrong and I hurt you and I'm sorry. It, it feels like it's everyone else's fault and there's always somebody to blame. What a way to humble yourself and to model for your teenage kids that you actually did something that you never intended to do and you had a role in it, even if it's a small role. I just think that would go so far if you could practice the words, maybe get an objective third party to to, to posture yourself and say, hey, here's how I want to talk to my kids Help me understand, is this going to come? Is this appropriate? Because my anger is leading here. And then once you get your, your words, sit down and have an open dialogue. We've lost that capacity as humans to have civil discourse in a way that owns our mistakes and that honors everyone that was affected. And I think we could get a lot out of just being present in our mistakes and also in our pain in a way that invites our kids to say me too, because mm. they're waiting for that invitation, but they're just nervous. Like mm. what is my action going to do? That's going to further the pain or that's going to taint my reputation because the last thing they want to be is a broken child of divorce. They, mm. they want to be whole and healed just like you do, but they don't have the skills yet to know how to, ma to manage that. I love what you just modeled there because you gave even almost kind of a script for the way we can address this as our kids age, because they are going to continue to process it. For us as adults, we have all of the information. We were part of the situation. So we know what happened. We know what it took to make the decision. And so for us, there's grief, but it's far more clear to us what we are grieving and why. But for our kids, especially if our kids are younger, cognitively, they can't even make sense of all of what's happening. They don't have a full awareness and they don't have all the details. So as they get older, this grief continues because they start to have a different mind map of the world, how they fit in it, how their family fits in it. And then the questions pop up and it's like, well, why this then? And so as their brain continues to mature, they're going to have more questions and they're going to need more than some surface level answers. And a lot of times I think we are afraid of speaking too much to the subject because we don't want to say something that is wrong. But if we don't give our kids any context, then it actually prolongs the grief because they don't even know fully what they're grieving. It doesn't make sense. They know there's a piece missing. And then on top of that, you're saying, well, let's continue in relationship. You should trust me. 
all the while they're like, but I feel like I'm putting together a puzzle and you're holding a bunch of the pieces (laughs) and you won't tell me why. That is so accurate to be able to say your grief as a child of divorce is a lifetime journey. And I don't say that to discourage anyone, but to really be honest about the lingering effects. I write about this in the book, the idea of something that happens in my life in my 30s, 40s, you know, in the future in my 50s, to be able to say that feeling, that emotional weight is a piece of a story that happened 20 years ago. And I need to be able to call it out, to own it, to say this, not to blame it, you know, in a victim mindset is, oh, well, I'm a child of divorce and I'm never, ever going to be okay. That's not, that's not the heart and that's not the truth. But to be able to say, oh, I didn't expect to feel this emotion that's tied to something from a decision my parents made right now. But because I'm feeling it, I need a safe place to own it and process it. And I, yeah, I wrote that, that story about when my firstborn came to the world and with all the the joy and delight of welcoming that first grandchild who felt like a fifth grandchild in the blended family experience based on an experience that my my stepdad had and his legacy with his his bio children before I came into the picture. And so when that happened, I was hurting and I was I was frustrated and I was angry. I wasn't resentful. I didn't I didn't dislike the other grandchildren in the blended family. I just felt like something was taken from me that I had no say in. And had I not processed it, I might actually carry those bitter and resentful emotions, but unknowingly causing more relationship damage into the future. There's there's a twofold experience there because the fact of the matter is if the relationship is dangerous to the children, emotionally unsafe, there are long-term effects of that as well. Yes, And absolutely. so there, but there is a lot to be weighed there but I think the one thing that is hopeful about this is wherever the Lord, the Lord is in it with us, wherever it is that we end up going. And he is able to redeem so much of these things, but there's going to be hurt. There's going to be some frustrations. As you mentioned, you talk about that story with your firstborn, calling them stolen firsts. And I know as a mom, I experienced those stolen firsts where it's like, even like, oh, you got to take them to that place and I didn't get to take them, you know? And then there's some other things that come along with that. A lot of women in our community will talk about where the children will start to favor maybe even the less involved parent if it's not an even split. If we're maybe the one who has the primary custody and we're doing most of the work, but then it seems that that's taken for granted. And that can be really frustrating. But in your book, you do highlight a little bit of what the dynamic is that's going on there. So I wanted to know if you would dive into that difference between love and intimacy and how sometimes those things play out. Certainly. I'll, I'll do my best to encapsulate it because it's, it's a little tricky to nail it for every single person. But I do think that what I've learned is that children rarely express gratitude (laughs) for the boundaries and the discipline that any parental figures put in their life because they're, they're made to push the boundaries and to say, where is the line? And when that line is held, it's actually loving. It's kind to set boundaries. It is the most clarified picture of what is safe and what is not. And when those boundaries are not there, then even though it feels more fun and more adventurous and high risk, it actually is not, it's not reminiscent of safety in that, in that child's life. And so because a child cannot say, thank you for making me clean my room before I went to the sleepover, because that taught me discipline, right? You're never gonna get that. Uh, but guess what? When they arrive at the other parent house uh, and that parent really only has, let's say, weekend visitation or summers, for example. We had a neighbor who only went to uh, their parents' house, their bio parents' house in the summertime. And it was like summer camp, right? They Mm -hmm. came home, they were on the lake, they had water skiing pictures and all sorts of adventures. And then school starts with 
parents, A and, and step parent in the localized homework. You have to eat healthy. You have to go to sports practice, all the things. And what's going to sound more fun, even to an adult to have a camp experience on a lake with a parent who doesn't have to take you to school or to go into the routine of making your bed, packing your lunch, all the stressful day-to-day things. And so I think a lot of times people can confuse that as they love the parent more than they love me. But the way I try and describe it is they actually see the more intimate, engaging, raw elements of relationship, including conflict, including discipline, including some of the growth areas that are required for healthy brain development, but they don't have the cognitive ability to communicate that as a value. And so the best advice I could give from a parent's perspective, if you're the one experiencing kind of that Disneyland uh, exposure where everything that that other parent does is perfect and everything you do is so horrible, uh, hang tight, one for the long haul, see it, see that the value that you bring is, is not with a uh, void, it, it will come back full circle in the character that's developed in these children. But also, they don't love you any less. They mm-hmm. really don't. They're just experiencing a side of parenting that's not replicated mm-hmm. in the visitation schedule of the other family structure. That long view is so critical. And I know it's hurtful in the moment when we don't get to be the fun one. But I think it's similar. The way I look at it is, you know, the way that we would eat, for example, and everybody loves cake, right? Or has that sweet thing or, you know, whatever their guilty pleasure is. There are still things like that we can eat on a regular basis though that we enjoy though. It's not like it's all salads, you know, (laughs) like you can still, still, I love a salad, but the point being that like, it's not to say like, oh, well, this is like eating, you know, only vegetable carrots, you know, like broccoli experience versus like cake and ice cream experience. It's like, no, there's still so much to enjoy and you're still putting in those foundational essentials that over time, as they have to start drawing on the essentials, that they will begin to appreciate them because they need them. And you were the one that modeled it for them. And not only you model it, but you offer it as a part of their health. And I think as kids get older, they do start to say, man, I feel better when I eat a a balanced meal Mm -hmm. versus, you know, two in and out burgers, animal style. Like I feel better every once in a while. I want the fast food. And so they're, they're catch up. They will understand. Yeah. It's really an interesting light bulb. When I start to see kids whose parents split when they were maybe six or seven, and then they get to high school and they start to see that Disneyland type parenting style as actually something that's not as fun as it mm-hmm. used to be mm-hmm. because they some of them get sucked up in you know to the drama of behavior or they see i don't know if it's substance abuse or mm. relationships in and out and they just don't feel safe in that other parent's yeah. household and you know best case scenario you want to have equal modeling of boundaries in both settings mm-hmm. uh, but one thing you have to remember is Marriage doesn't ruin couples, right? Right. It's the individual behaviors of the people in the marriage that actually become destructive. And so if you had this idyllic split with one side of the family and their new, mm-hmm. you know, spouse and the other side, and they're they're all eating healthy and doing nobody's saying any bad words, and there's never any, right. you know, they're all taking them to church every three days a week, whatever it is. You're probably not somebody who's experienced divorce. And I I don't want to say that in a presumptuous way, but those behaviors, now people can change, Mm -hmm. but oftentimes you are going to have some dissonance in Mm -hmm. what you see in both households because it's those patterns, those very same patterns that caused the breakup, the reason to split in the first place. And so Mm -hmm. we have to not be disillusioned by this idea that 
we're all just going to split and we're not going to be affected by the court case and the kids are going to be happy-go-lucky and we're just going to have two houses. It's going to be so fun. You know, Mm -hmm. I think you have to actually sit down and say, there's some expectations here that might fall short of what we desire. And how can we prepare ourselves when that happens? If I can paraphrase what you said there, it's basically, if it was going to be so healthy on both sides, more than likely the marriage would have stayed together. And that while people can grow to that kind of health, that generally is a process that happens after the divorce and for many years, and the kids are still observing a mismatch in terms of the level of emotional, spiritual, mental health and maturity. You're a really good paraphraser. I think you know <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> oh, so one thing I'm curious though about is when kids have had an identity that they've formed around being a specific role in in this family. And then there's memories that go with that and all these kinds of things. Suddenly that gets ripped away. And to us, we might feel like my personal experience with divorce was like, that's the past. I am throwing it, literally throwing it all away. Starting, I'm going to bring the good that I can bring, but much of it is from my relationship with the Lord and my relationship with my kids and my relationship with the people around me. It was not that I was bringing much of the marriage with me, but the kids, that's some of the foundation of their understanding of even who they are. So when it comes to the discord, maybe that happens there between our experience with healing and their experience with healing and the past and the role of all of that, how should we look at that? That's such a good question. And I wrestled when I wrote about this particular subject and in their shoes, I went back and forth. I'll never forget. I was with my editor and I said, is the word crisis too rough? You know, is, is it, is that too dramatic? Should I, should I call it identity struggles or identity? And I, I really couldn't get past telling the truth that it really was a crisis. And that is, it's, it's because of what you just said, as a child, you're what I, I ran into some of the Barner research about where children develop their identity framework and how they use that foundation to kind of build the pillars of what their, their family tree will look like. And it was fascinating to me that family structure was in the top two re- ways that children identify who they are. It's not just it's not just what they like or their their uh, habits. It's it's their ide- it's the framework of who they are. And if who they are is no longer in an environment that they know as as what developed that, that's a crisis moment. And where do I fit what do I call myself? <laughs> Who, you know, you see this a lot with the last name mm-hmm. experience where children of divorce will hold on to the, the biological last name on the birth certificate when the marriage was intact, but maybe the, the mother will drop the last name and go back to her maiden name That's or remarry and take mm-hmm. on another name. And so you've got these families where even in paperwork for school or mm-hmm. conferences, you have a child's name on one piece of paper. And their biological parents' name on another piece of paper, and they don't share the same colors. They don't share mm-hmm. the same jersey, mm-hmm. and that that's that's a crisis moment where you mm-hmm. say, "Okay, well, I understand why, and I know you want to honor your legacy, and I know that when you see Dad's name, it hurts you, but Dad's name is my name, and so." Does that mean that I'm a part of that hurt? Does that mean that I'm a part of this family? Does that mean that I? care more about dad than you. I don't know. And so the identity crisis is pretty real. And I'm a sports fanatic. I love competing and I love associating with teams that win. Um, But I've been on a lot of them that lose a lot. (laughs) So I feel like the best way that I can describe it is, is being at a sporting event where you have exactly the same amount of loyalty to both teams, but you cannot... It, it wouldn't make sense in the sports world to have both teams win. That That's not how it works. You have a winner and you have a loser. And so as you have your name on the back of your jersey, as a child of divorce, you say, okay, 
am I on the winning team or the losing team? And where does that, how does that work? And who's, do I go to the parade and celebrate the party or do I, you know, listen to the coach and grow? And I don't know, am I a first marriage kid? Am I a bio kid? Am I a blended kid? Am I a step kid? What what am I? Mm. And I felt like I actually didn't heal from that crisis of identity uh, fully until I walked down the aisle and took on a new name and could Mm. redefine my family lineage for myself without anyone else's decisions impacting it. Um, And I find that to be a really profound and gosh, just supernatural milestone in my life when I took on a new name and got married and was able to say, this is my identity. I am now a Reitzema Mm. and I can take what I learned from my upbringing and, and grow from it. And I love the preciousness of my family upbringing and my legacy is still raw, rich in my heritage, but I don't think my parents, like you said, carry that same power and weight of of the family name that they left because for them it's a it's a memory of of pain but for us it's it's a root of our branches yeah mm, that's so such a good word picture that this so much of this is in their root and as much as we might want to say well this is a choice for me but it's okay it doesn't mean anything and i'm on your team this is all about your team they don't absorb all of that. You know, there's a whole bunch of this that's like, uh-huh, yeah, right, mom. And like you said, that may not fully be redeemed until a much later date. And we just kind of have to stay steadfast, I think, and hold in the the discomfort and just make space for the continued grief that some of these choices are going to bring. So as you mentioned, it could be something like changing a last name, which happens relatively early in that process. But then as we think about perhaps a dating experience, and especially if our kids did move into that new priority slot, they kind of moved up in the game, as we'll say, you know, because somebody there's a gap there. And so now if you begin to date and you're doing this in view of your kids that they know what's going on, there is a little bit of that shaking up again. That's like, well, am I going back to the bench? Like, what does this really mean for me? Exactly. And are you now I was your healing place and I was your motivation to, to be okay and get on the scene again. Mm -hmm. And now that you're there, you're all Twitter pated about this new person. And I love that for you because I want you to be happy, but I have another adjustment and all of even your questions, Michelle are so thoughtful because it demonstrates in real time in a conversation that is, again, I, I'm about to turn 40. I've had a lifetime of health and healing and experience and exposure to relationships. And we're still talking about the relevance of what you're saying is that it is not, it's not a one and done, like here's a new beginning. Mm. And tomorrow it's that I, I laugh. My, my kids, like any kid in the Disney world, love Frozen and the idea of Elsa saying, you know, let it go. The past mm-hmm. is in the past. It's actually not. The past of a, of a divorce for a child is in the present. It's in the future. Mm-hmm. It's in their kids' future. It's everywhere. It's wow. just this kind of lingering. I don't want to call it a cloud, but it's, it's, it's a lingering experience that affects everything. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not a before. I went and got my haircut. It was long and now it's short. End of story. It is a fabric of roots that you said that are cut and torn and growing in different directions. And there's so much to process and we don't have a lot of the tools to know how. Mm -hmm. But there's hope in the middle of this. And I love that this is where you go in your book. One of my favorite quotes was actually something that I believe you said that your husband said to you, and it was that divorce has not defined you. Divorce has refined you. And I think a lot of us in this situation, we wouldn't have picked it. At the, no, no, like we didn't stand there on our wedding day and say, oh, I cannot wait to be a single mom. I cannot wait until our whole family like falls apart, but it's where we are. And so yeah. we look at our kids and go, ah, this is not what I wanted for you. And we might even feel like we've given them a disadvantage 
We might feel like we have stacked the deck against them. Even if this was a choice that was not ours to be made, or if it was a choice that had to be made for the safety of our kids, give us some sense of the bright side though. As we talked Uh, about the fact that there is a process. (laughs) We did talk about, we can't get straight to resurrection Sunday, but it's coming. But there is a resurrection. <laughs> and here's and here's why because my insecurity in before saying yes to a wedding proposal, my biggest insecurity was here was this man who was loving me so well, who came from a really, really from what I saw in that moment, you know, a healthy lineage with very little split or divorce in their narrative. And I was bringing in a whole legacy of what our Christmases were going to look like and what are, mm-hmm. you know, the, we got grandmas and grandpas and mimas and papas and all the different things. And how are those going to interact? And I felt a lot of weight. Like, I'm, I'm going to be a black sheep to your family heritage. And do you really want me? Do you, do you want this? Cause this is where I come from. And I'll never forget it. It feels like yesterday we've been married almost 15 years, but I feel like he just said, Lauren, I've, I've dated a lot of people who have come from all sorts of families and the ones that I have dated in the, the previous, you know, who had come from divorce, I, I promised myself I'd, ne- I'd never con- seriously consider somebody with that heritage because uh, they really were, they were kind of a mess. <laughs> and he used that word because they, they were trying to go around the pain. Mm-hmm. And I don't say the puff this, I don't say this to puff me up in any type of ego or pride, but he said, but you, Lauren, you have walked into the pain and through the pain. And just like that, you know, dark hour of the cross with Jesus, what comes from staying there until it's really finished is a redemptive story that has made you the woman I am madly in love with and cannot wait to start a new legacy with. And I, I, divorce is not a scar on your record. It's the reason that I love you. It's the reason that you have grown and learned how to process a generation of relational health, because had that not happened in your life, maybe you wouldn't even have the awareness that you needed to learn new skills. Maybe our marriage wouldn't be as rich because you wouldn't have sought skills that would change the direction. There's so much power that came from those insecurities being brought to the surface and from his response being so gracious And I think that God never wastes pain. He never gives you something in your life that is going to destroy, you know, if you stay with him and if you work, you know, toward obedience, forgive my long windedness. This is just a passionate, a passionate point in your questioning, because there is nothing but hope if you can fully go back to the beginning where we started, where enter the pain, figure out with awareness why it's happening. What's your role in it? How do you refine that role? How do you use God's tools and his direction and skills in acquisition where you can say, I'm going to change a legacy? Um, Where you have to be careful is when you just say, well, I don't have any pain. That's for other people in this journey. Mm -hmm. And we're better than that. That's you know, that's your story, but I'm going to rise above because I'm just resilient. (laughs) You know, resilience is awesome as a character quality, but to be truly resilient, you have to have dealt with the issue. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things I see a lot is people never deal with the issue until it's repeating itself. So as a cautionary tale, deal with your pain in the present, be with your kids in theirs and let them create something new. Uh, but you have to do something different to get a new picture. You can't just repeat the same old patterns and expect a different outcome. That's really good. And I think a lot of us are fixated on this idea that curses are generational, that this thing, maybe it was passed to us, or maybe we feel like it's starting with us and we're passing it to our kids, but blessing is generational as well. And as you said, this is something we can do side by side with our kids. And so where it can be a refining thing for them, it can be one for us too. And that all of these things that your husband was saying to you about this not being something that he loves you in spite of, but because of, 
we can have to have that exact same experience. We can, and our kids can. And I've even seen where starting to heal some generational patterns as I've healed actually can move back up the chain. That if you have healthy enough family members who are in the generations before you, that you're able to safely and comfortably share at the right times the things that you've learned and what God has redeemed to give them hope that these things can be restored in a long line and then pass that legacy on to the next generations. But these things always come with cost. There's Mm -hmm. always for this resilience, for this redemption, for this new awareness and for for the the hope that we have, there was always a cost. Just like with our own faith journey, it was the cost of Christ, his life in exchange for ours to experience a redemption. And I think that is the thing that as I'm sitting here squarely in the middle of this single mother journey, though, you know, I'm I'm banking on these promises and I'm borrowing faith from people like yourself and other women who have gone this path before me who have said, just as you have, Seek that long obedience. Just keep going. Do it with your kids. Keep going. Keep going. Does it mean everything is going to be perfect? No, it doesn't. But does it mean that as far as it depends on me, that I'm doing my part to make sure that I'm bringing that redemption, I'm opening the doors wide into my household? That's what I'm going to (laughs) do. Yes. And, you know, for all of the things that the wounds that children of divorce carry in their childhood, there's also... There's some really opportunistic circumstances that they will be in the top percentage of Mm. healed kiddos uh, because so often, you know, everyone is going to face grief and pain in their life. For some of us, it's a broken family. For some of us, it's death. For some of us, it's financial. For some of us, it's uh, abuse. For some of us, it's addiction. Whatever it is, we... The human race cannot escape darkness and pain because we live in a world that's not our home. And so therefore, your kids are actually with the right leadership and with the right direction in in Christ will actually have a head start at dealing with the grief and pain and the moments in their life if they can come to it as a posture of victory and not victims. And if they can see and, sh- and really unpack, okay, tell me more. Why did this happen between mom and dad? Where, where was the breakdown? Because I think what's really sad for me to see right now is there's a whole generation that's running away from marriage completely because mm-hmm. they're so hurt by divorce that they feel like, well, if I can just avoid the commitment, I can avoid the pain. Mm-hmm. And I try and tell them, you know, actually by avoiding the commitment, you're avoiding the blessing Mm. because marriage is amazing in its intended healthiest state. It was designed to be the most intimate picture of Christ and his love for the church. But because of sin and because of the, the, the way that humans are, that doesn't always play out. But if we don't confess that and live in our repentant state, we miss the opportunity to be redeemed whether we're single or in a marriage or on a journey toward one. And so there is no shame associated with seeking truth and redemption and saying, God, if I understand anything better than I ever did, it's that this world is not my home Mm -hmm. and we cannot escape pain. It's going to come. And when it does point me to the hope of the cross and the resurrection, because you are alive and Mm -hmm. If you can say that to yourself, you know, every day that whether you feel like you're nailed right now to a cross or whether you feel like I see it, I see the glory of the why and God's been so faithful because he will be, I promise you, you are on a journey that does not end in death because death ended with the resurrection mm-hmm. Easter Sunday, you know, mm-hmm. and we can, we don't know. It doesn't have to be April and March to say those words. <laughs> we can live those every single day. Amen. (laughs) Lauren, I'm just so grateful for the way that you have pressed in, in your life. And as I said, the, the hope that it even allows me to borrow and that I'm able to pass that to my kids and how you're just allowing that to be your life's work. 
As we wrap up the conversation, I ask each guest the same question. And it is, if there was just one thing that you would want a single mom to know, what would it be? You are enough. You are valuable. You're seen and you have the freedom to show some of the vulnerabilities that you feel like you have to stuff all the time. There's strength in being weak and vocalizing your need, but ultimately you're doing a great job and you're enough. Thank you so much for that. Lauren, would you tell listeners about your book and resources and how they can follow along with you? Certainly. I, I was able to write In Their Shoes. Uh, it's available on Amazon, all booksellers. And if you want to connect with me, I'm always open to email. Uh, Lauren at myrelationshipcenter.org is my email. And I also have channels at Lauren Reitzma on Instagram and Facebook. Awesome. And I will include links in the show notes for the listeners so they can access all the resources more easily. But thank you so much for hanging out with me today and just for a wonderful chat. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me and blessings on you. If you enjoyed this conversation with Lauren, I've got a couple of others I can suggest for you. Check out episode 98, Never Alone, Parenting in the Power of the Holy Spirit with Jeannie Cunyon. Also, you might enjoy episode 95, Raising Kids Who Bounce Back with Dr. Rhonda Spencer Huang. We'd love to invite you to get involved with the Plus One Parents community. You can join us on Facebook or Instagram at plusone.parents. And on Facebook, you can join our private Facebook group, Beloved Collective. Also, at plusoneparents.org, we are constantly adding new resources related to all of the topics that we cover here on the Christian Single Moms podcast. That's everything from parenting to dating to spiritual and emotional well-being. If you'd like to stay up to date on the new resources as we release them, you can join our mailing list there as well at plusoneparents.org. I'm so grateful that you're a part of this community and that you were able to join me for this episode today. I pray always that you would know that you are seen and you are beloved.